This is the Monologue Podcast, a platform for new writing. We showcase original monologues read by actors to give you that theatre feeling from the comfort of your earphones. I'm your host, Daniela Down, and this podcast is brought to you by Orange Theatre Company. Sit back, relax, grab your spanks, or let it all hang loose. Episode 2, Tits and Ass, is about to begin. You ready for this jelly? We should maybe start a girl band. Well, hello, you lovely bunch. I'm here with my co-host, Syra Ehrens. Hello. One of the directors at Orange Theatre Company. How's it going? It is going as always. Going, going, And how is it going with you? No, for me, it's going good. Um, (laughs) Pandemic. Still going, isn't it? Nothing really. I don't have any news. news. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Monologue Podcast, and I think our juiciest to date. We're talking wobbly bits today as the theme is tits and arse. Whether you love them or hate them or feel completely indifferent about boobies and bottoms, they protrude from our culture. Just like Kim Kardashian's behind, we can't get away from it, no matter how much we want to. Over-sexualization on social, gender equality, free the nipple, the surge in plastic surgery popularity, the Me Too movement, and just how we view body image in general. It's a big old topic, this one, but our monologues today explore it with (coughs) balls. The three monologues today come in all shapes and sizes. From a rattled father unsure of how to deal with his teenage daughter who sent a tit pic, to a young woman retelling the tale of when her best friend got utterly smashed at a bar, to a circus performer caught up in the dark memories on the road. It's a wild ride for you this episode. Let the storytelling journey begin. So now is the bit where we do some spiel. Some spiel! We can do some spiel. So, Daniela, what advice would you give your teenage self? Well, I would say, be patient, the tits are coming, but I know for a fact they never did, so... I'm not going to give myself that advice because that would just be holding out for false hope. I think I would give myself the advice, just take things a little more lightly. Don't dwell on every pimple and hair and bulge because it really isn't all as terrible and all-consuming as you think as a teenager. It's such a shame, right? Because when you're younger, you know people say this to you, but you don't listen to them. No, I don't know. Maybe we're hardwired to see the negative. I don't know. But that's what I would tell my teenage self. What, what advice would you give your teenage self? To really try to listen to the good advice that people give you, that the way you are at that time, you're never going to be as young as that. You're never going to look that way. And it's all going to be freaking fine. Just... Try to detach all that imagery, all that outside visualization of what we think of how we look like Mm. from just the experience of life. But to be honest, that's still hard today. We're trying to do that now. And I think we became more aware of it. And people are, for example, meditating more and detaching that, you know, external self from who you really are as a person. And that's way more important. But yeah, (laughs) Um, that was some good spiel. Yeah. We probably can cut 90%, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, enough from us. Time for a monologue. 
Our first monologue, Role Models, follows a father trying to fathom how and why his daughter would send a tidbit. It is performed by Onno Arts, a Dutch actor working in film, and written by Noor Houtakkers, an Amsterdam-based commissioning editor at HarperCollins Publishing House and a freelance illustrator and designer. Her advice for a teenage self would be, trust your gut, it never disappoints. Here is Role Models. It seems never-ending. Once the seal of the first tier broke, the rest followed in an unbroken, uncontrollable stream. Oh, the helpless wailing. A sound that penetrated my eardrum since she was a baby and continues to do so now, 15 years later. I ask her why she sent it, but in return I get incomprehensible shouting and a lot of runny snot. It's not the why that's important, Paul. Heather, my wife, equally terrifying like a bear protecting her cubs. She is the victim here, Paul, she hisses at me. A victim? I don't know if I should laugh or cry. Both of them seem fitting reactions by now. I mean, she's the one that sent her tits to God knows who. Why does that make her the victim? It's like saying Manson's girls were victims. They bloody kill all those people, not him. Our daughter's sobs get louder and deeper. Comparing her to a killer might not have been the greatest idea, and Heather's deadly look confirms it. It was only one. Only Eric. A muffled sound from underneath the pillow mat is using to soak up the tears. Jesus, fuck. All right, Maddie. Honey, I'll try to be as calm as possible, all right? Why did you send this picture of yourself to this boy? Hmm? She sits right back up, wrapped in her own arms and my wife's, and says, I thought he loved me. Love. There it is. They are fifteen. That's not love. That boy has probably jerked off to it a hundred times by now. Love? Are you kidding me? Heather, oh, honey's her, but I'm not taking this shit. My wife says they can go to the principal or talk to the boy's parents, maybe. Parents, what do we do about her? Take away your phone? Ban her from Snapchat? Have her talk to a bloody therapist for all I care? Maddie fires up from the sofa and yells at me. It's my body, Dad. My boobs. I can send them to the entire world if I want to. I'm the boss of my own body. She walks off. Heather right behind her, of course. She's 15 years old. If anybody's the boss of her body, it's us. Where does she learn this stuff? All these girls on social media sure as hell don't teach her how to be some sort of feminist. They stuff their lips and foreheads with their own ass fat, extend their hair, eyelashes, and eyebrows with a fucking pony's mane and put so much makeup on their face you would mistake them for an actual woman. God, haven't I learned that the hard way? But that's a story for another time. But then they caption it. That's the funny part. Hashtag love yourself. Hashtag girl power or some other bullshit. All it is is a cry for attention. There's no self-love there. No love at all. Just begging for some. So this is what young girls do now. 
they take pictures of their tits. This didn't happen when I was 15. All we did was stare at them from a distance or make silly noises like honk honk. That was funny, you know, but this, this is just absurd. Heather, my dearest wife, she, well, she changed since this whole Me Too thing. She's speaking out more, reading Roxanne Gay, Gloria Steinem, and all these other women teaching her how to reclaim her power. I encourage it so she has something to do. No, 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 I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I do encourage her. And she's trying to be a role model, but she's not really succeeding from the look of it. God, what a mess. Maddie's phone pings in from between the cushions. One new comment by someone called at Dan underscore the man. Well, her code is, uh, let me think. Her birthday? It unlocks. It's a picture of her glancing into a camera. Purple eyeshadow, pouty lips, tight studded necklace and a low cut top showing off her. Well, can you even call it a cleavage? Heather liked it. And so did 27 others. It's a picture posted 18 hours ago and captioned, Just hanging out. What are you guys up to? Hashtag lazy Sunday. Hashtag bored. Hashtag love yourself. And there it is. Next to a picture of the pimply pubescent face of Dan the Man, his comment. Hashtag daddy issues. As always, we go backstage with the writers to find out more about their work and their creative process, which will hopefully inspire you lovely listeners to get your creative juices flowing too. We've got the writer Noor on the line. It's such a pleasure to get to chat with you and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. <laughs> so how did you uh, learn about us? Um, well, I do, um, well, I do know you, so that makes it quite easy to know about the Orange Theatre Company. And then I heard about this and I thought, I need to, I need to do this. I need to also submit something. Yes, and we're really happy you did. Yes, thank you. So, uh, we all know the pitfalls of the digital age and perhaps some things uh, were better in the past, growing up like we did, without the mobile phones, with all the cameras. Being able to be free to explore young love without the worries of intimate experiences being exposed and shared so easily. So how did this episode's theme trigger the idea for your monologue? Well, in general, I do write a lot about the female body and how we react to it, meaning ourselves, but also as a society and um, how it is still very much objectified. We hear people around us saying like, oh, I'm a tit man or I'm an ass man and <laughs> explaining why they are as if one's better or even worse than the other it just sounds so weird to me. So this all means, in my opinion, that female bodies are still being appropriated. And I think writing or art or film um, can really change this behavior. So reading about this theme uh, of the episode, I felt like I need to write this and maybe inspire somebody to pay this message forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. The main insight, the conditioning and that we do things without really thinking them through um, and the implications of that. Yet we also still want to admire beauty or be attracted in a way to certain... It's a, it's a tricky balance, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Hey, and talking about daddy issues, uh, your protagonist seems like a troubled, challenged man when it comes to issues of female sexuality. So why did you choose to write from a male's perspective? And were there any added challenges because of it? I, we talked about it just a little bit, but I honestly think that some people in commenting or judging others, they actually don't know that they're doing something wrong and that they might hurt somebody or that they might um, cause for insecurities. And I believe that this all starts at a very young age. So if we go back to primary school, that in my memory, it was always boys against girls. So mm -hmm. boys can't play with dolls, whereas girls can. And this eventually, in my opinion, grows out to be boys can sleep around, but girls can't. Mm -hmm. And this is where parents or adults can step in and take the responsibility to teach their sons the right thing, but also show their daughters that they can speak up and own their place in this world, which can hopefully, ultimately, lead to more equality. Long story short, sorry, I wanted to paint a picture of the situation where this is the complete opposite, where the father chose what he knows and, mm -hmm. like we said, what he's conditioned to believe. And yeah what the consequences of those beliefs are for his family. So that's what I wanted to say, but the biggest challenge in this for me was, I think writing a character that I cannot relate to in any way. Because I think usually when we're writing, you put like little pieces of yourself in it. In this story, I could relate to the daughter or even the wife. And I mm. think that's what makes it important for me to pay this message forward because I do recognize myself in the women in the story and I, honestly believe that I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, going back to um, at primary school, the example you used, we're, we're kind of even conditioned from that age that, you know, if a boy likes you, they're mean to you. And us as girls, when a boy is mean to you, that means they like you. And boys learn that when they're mean, that's how they show <laughs> affection. I guess it's a hard, a hard thing to, to unlearn. And you come from the world of publishing and work as a commissioning editor at HarperCollins, Holland. But now you're dipping the pen in the ink yourself as you are writing your first book. And also, this was your first time to write a monologue. What was the experience like? Well, the experience of writing a monologue, it was, it was actually very fun because I had no idea what, what I was doing, basically. I, was, I started with a dialogue. I was like, wait, this is the complete opposite. So this was mm. quite hard, but... I listened to a lot of your episodes and I read my story out loud as if I was performing it, as you will. It was, uh, it was really fun and really challenging, but I really, uh, I really liked how, uh, how it ended up. It, it really uh, forces you to focus more on one character and, and creating the whole world from just one voice. Although dialogue writing is a whole other skill entirely. I'm, when you said, like, oh, I normally write dogs, that's really impressive. Do you think that it has helped, you know, having read, you must read hundreds and thousands of stories? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I do read a lot. I am, a, I am actually a commissioning editor of nonfiction. So most of the things I read are nonfiction, but reading a lot of romance or thrillers or maybe even children's books is, um, you get a sense of general storytelling and shaping characters. And I think in the process of reading all these different stories you also learn about uh, your own preferences and what style speaks to you for example and that can maybe help you again in writing your own story yeah kind of pushing yourself to either consume or try different 
creative outlet can maybe get you get you out of that creative rut. I know it's helped me in the past. All right. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you yeah, for joining thank us. You. Our second monologue, Curly Whirly, is the vivid tale of one girl's wild night out at a not-so-nice bar. It is performed by Venetia Clark, a British actor who has worked in theatre and film internationally, and written by Evangeline Dixon, an actor, voice artist and theatre maker based in Kent, England. And when asked what her advice would be for her teenage self, she said, Stop trying to make people like you. You have no control over their perception. Here is Curly Whirly. I want to get Curly Whirly in a fucking bar. You know what kind of bar I mean. The kind of bar that bridges the gap between club and bar. The kind of bar you can get drinks with popcorn floating in it. The kind of bar where the hand on the lower back move isn't so much a move but more a rite of passage to every dumb fuck that eats you with his eyes. Like they're not allowed in the bar unless they latch on around your waist like one of those fucking bracelets that you thwack on your wrist at school like a ruler. They'd clamp you in. The second you step in, step into Christmas. Step into Cuntmas. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, you know that bar. Getting curly-whirly is a phrase that I coined by Winnie on the 17th of September 2018. Baltic and windy and London is packed. London is the worst at Christmas, but not Winnie. She fucking loved it. We'd taken shelter in the downstairs toilets of Queen of Oxton and she was all over the shop. She'd been drinking like it was going out of fashion, by the dram, non-stop. And when I say dram, I don't actually mean dram. I mean fishbowl, bucket, small bathtub. Shit juice too, never the good stuff. It was... impressive. It was disgusting. It was fucking Stella. It was all Winnie. And she was the most twisted I had ever seen her. Eyes in the back of her head in a thick sheen of sweat. Like a big fucking... slug. I love slugs. And Winnie. She was just slipping and sliding and slithering all over the bathroom floor and suddenly, out of nowhere, she pauses. Stock still, rabbit in headlights. And then she just runs. Zoom! Pew, pew, pew! Gone, gone, gone! Out the door and into the night. And me and G, who'd only turned up five minutes before, didn't know where to fucking look she'd gone so quickly. Honestly, the speed! Mad. Poor G. She wasn't prepared for Winnie on a mad one. A where's Winnie kind of night. She wasn't doing too well either. She'd just come back from cosy Christmas Tinder date number four with Tori Darren, who she only keeps seeing because he lets her have three courses in a nice restaurant. And she comes up with a new excuse every time to make a stealthy dash just after pudding. They're fucking genius, honestly. Date number one was very... Sorry, babes, I've got an overnight electrician coming to fit a smart meter and I've been putting it off for ages. Date number two went like, I'm so sorry, Darren. My housemate has lost her keys and if I'm not home to let her in after a night shift as she's a nurse, she'll be locked out all night. Date three, how she got away with this one, I'll never know. Darren, you are not going to believe it. I have a twin. They turned up on my doorstep just now and I have to rush home and make up for all the lost years. 
And tonight, date four at fucking Sushi Samba. Dazzy Wazzy Wing Wong, guess what? This scare messaged me on Instagram. And if I don't go home right now and record my video audition for the next series of The Voice, I might miss out on my big break. And you don't want me to miss out on that, do you, babe? Genius fucking bitch. Anyway, she's here. Thank God. She's three bellinis down and stinks of prawn sashimi, but thank the laws on I, cause fuck chasing Winnie around this ridiculous rabbit warren of a club on my owns. Absolutely not. So, Winnie's bolted, and we're after her like wacky shutting races on Boomerang, dodging Tory Darren lookalikes like two swinging balls, bending and chasing direction with every thwack that comes our way. We regroup and end up in the smoking area. And Shock, horror. There's Winnie. She's alone and I can hear nobody ought to be alone at Christmas coming from inside and it's fucking picture perfect. Everyone is standing up and pretending to smoke and asking for ends and feigning to know how to roll and there's our Winnie crouched up against the railings and eating. Guess what? Guess what she's eating? A curly whirly. A fucking curly whirly? Where did she get a curly whirly from? It's the most specific chocolatey chewy yum yums that there is. Just chamming away at it. All over her cheeks and some on her knees. She's so fucking sticky and I love her so much. And that's where it came from. Getting curly whirly in a fucking bar. Perfection. My Winnie Nelson. 17th December 2018 and I'm sorry if this isn't the story that everyone wanted to hear at awake but there it is. I want to get curly whirly in a bar with her. My Winnie. The kind of bar that bridges the gap between club and bar because Winnie loved those bars. No one loves those bars but Winnie did. And I know you wanted to have a respectful wake and a nice wake, but honestly, what the fuck are we doing at a golf club? Winnie? At a golf club? Why would it have been so wrong to go to one of those bars? You know the bar. I'm so sick of everyone thinking they're better than those bars. Because you're not. None of you are. You're just pretending you are because of wakes. Everyone is posh. Why's that? Anyway, to a drink up. By the fucking dram, alright? Alright. Just to double check I'm saying your name correctly, it's Evangeline? Evangeline, yes, perfect. Yeah. People usually call me Evie. Well, Evie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we're just here to talk a little bit about your monologue. So yeah, I mean, I feel like I know that bar and you know, we, we all know a Winnie. So where did, where did your Winnie come from? Or, uh, you know, your idea for this monologue and is she based on somebody in particular? Yeah, I, I'm from a, kind of originally from a very small kind of nothingy place in Somerset. And there was one club that me and all my friends would go to. So I kind of feel like Winnie is a, is a combination of all of my friends from that place. Lots of little parts all kind of conjoined together to make this kind of superwoman um, with all the kind of messy, lovely, warm 
crazy bits that came from all those people. Yeah, she feels very familiar. Um, but I think that's also to do with your with your writing and your writing style. It's kind of unapologetic and fast-paced and, and straight to the gut, very much just how real life and real friends talk. Um, and I think that makes the twist at the end even more impactful. Did you start writing the monologue with the idea of the wake in mind, or did you develop that idea as you were going? I, yeah, I developed it as I was going. I'm not, I'm not a great planner kind of tends to be off the back and off and off an idea or off a conversation or off something it kind of comes quite quickly um but I'm also quite akin to putting a twist in that kind of can be a bit darker or a bit more like you say kind of a bit more gut punchy um so I think I got about maybe about three quarters of the way through and I was like this something needs to happen something needs to something's got to give almost because mm. the audience are having too much fun <laughs> I mean I think writing even even unconsciously it's, it's always drawn from exp uh, personal experiences. I guess it's true what they say, you know, you write, you write about what you know. Um, and where, where in Somerset actually are you from? From, from right near Glastonbury, actually, right, which is okay. kind of the most familiar place that I think people tend to recognise. Yeah, Somerset, that's nice. Somerset, you, don't, exactly. you don't have the Somerset accent though. I, um, <laughs> I studied in Bath and I just completely fell in love with the uh, Somerset accent. <laughs> yeah and um <laughs> this this monologue it kind of makes you laugh out loud but you also feel incredibly sad for Winnie and not just because of her death but because of the life she led and the way she seemed to have burnt through it and yeah what is it about tragic characters that make them so attractive and are they often the focal character in your writing yeah yeah they are often I, I tend to like we touched on earlier I tend to kind of write the people and chiefly the, the women that I know and I feel like those people who do like you know like you say they, they burn fast they live through life they kind of jump from place to place and they jump through people and in, in the kind of a, such a, a shining bright fiery way um, those tend to be people that have sadness and they have things that they don't necessarily share and then maybe that's why we see them we see them burn out so quickly but yeah that's definitely a theme in my in my writing, lots of people with a fire who who have a lot of internal demons that I think I, I quite like to explore theatrically, just letting them out. Yeah, very well said. Um, you know, because obviously the theme is is tits and ass, and did that really yeah. kind of yeah, like how, how did that theme kind of trigger your? Um, was it an immediate kind of fully formed idea about this monologue, or did you sort of sit on it for a couple of days? I definitely sat on it. Yeah, I, it kind of brought into my head the image of when I was younger, like getting dressed, like with all my friends and kind of like, I was all kind of like in our bras and our pants, like trying on each other's clothes. And then that kind of brought the image of kind of like getting ready for a night out and those specific nights out that I had in Somerset, which are unlike any other night out I've had <laughs> anywhere else. They're just so strange. And yeah, ce celebrating that, that female friendship and that female connection and what happens to someone when that's when that's taken away mm. um and what do they find like what do we leave behind yeah but I, I like what you said about it being more of a, um, a celebration for me and discussing the theme with other people some some people were like um it could be very political it could be very negative but yeah I think it's also a cause for celebration and I think you you know your monologue deals with very dark subject matter but it's yeah it's also a celebration of this bright light 
Yeah, and that's that's such a theme with everything I write. I like to tackle important themes and current themes and political themes, but I'd like to think that everything I write has joy at the centre of it. And like you say, like celebration, because I think especially now, I know that's the kind of stuff that I want to go and see. I want to see mm-hmm. stuff that celebrates people and humans and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the show. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me on. Our final monologue today is Circus, a dark tale about the seedy underbelly of circus performance that take place after hours. Performed by Eli Thorne, a British actor and voiceover artist, and written by Sam Morris, a writer and director who calls the Netherlands home. And the advice he'd give his teenage self would be, don't think too much about what you're doing wrong. Everyone's too caught up in themselves to even notice. Here is Circus. charging to see us now is that everybody hates the freaks not because of what they are or aren't but because of what they do we work our tails off in the ring and all they gotta do to draw a bigger crowd than us is sit there lazy assholes people throw money at them too <laughs> want to make a wish or something The ringmaster, he never sees any of it, let alone us. Some people say they hide it in one of the bearded ladies' rolls of fat. (laughs) But I'm damned if I'm sticking my hand in there to find out. Anyway, we're sat in this dive bar, in this dive town, in this goddamn dive country. And it's right next to the local cat house. I mean, these girls are selling harder than coke at Christmas, but they're just as classless as we are. And then, in walks this angel. I mean, she's so graceful. It's like she's wearing the moon. This glow around the edges. Up gets Christo, that sucker. Always trying his luck. He's already spent his dollar on booze, so he's relying on charm. He's not doing badly either by the looks of things until that damn freak slides off his chair. One of a pair of amputee dwarves, arm and a leg off each. 
Only way to tell them apart is to remember which is missing what. A recent business acquisition by our dear leader, and <laughs> let me tell you, it's like they're shitting cash. So over he goes, pulls on her dress, and she looks away from Christo just long enough for him to do this little bow. And as he straightens up, the fishy mouth comes open, and there on his tongue is this big shiny coin. Well, she knows why she's there. So Christo gets the shoulder, and the dwarf gets the cleavage. You can imagine what happened next. Man, those little fuckers can be vicious. The girl just got up and walked out of there, of course. Everything got a little darker again. Anyway, Christo gets run out of the circus. We got run out of town. Dumb Christo. He was a good guy. Friend, even. <laughs> He's just a story now. Good thing about a story, though, <clears throat> it's always the same. Reliable, not like the people. That's why we like stories more than people. Anyway, you take that story and go light up someone else's darkness with it. I got mine all wrapped around me. We have the writer Sam Morris on the line. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hello, how you doing? So where are you calling in from, Sam? Uh, I'm in Utrecht right now, uh, my home of six months after I betrayed Amsterdam. Well, we're trying to avoid tourists these days, so uh, potentially you might... Oh no, don't tell me I've slipped back into being a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, my question to you is, like, how did a nice English lad like yourself end up in a seedy, fictitious American dive bar? <laughs> yeah, uh... I'd been listening to a lot of Tom Waits and reading a fair amount of kind of magical realism, which somehow often seems to involve circuses. And this story just kind of popped out of nowhere, really. And I'm not sure which bit of it started first. Like, normally there's a phrase or an image or something that starts a story. And here, the bizarreness of the whole thing seemed to arrive fully formed, which is quite nice, really. <laughs> so you didn't kind of write it in stages you did you sort of sit down at one time and this this story came out of you yeah i i tend to have a very different process to writing uh longer things than than writing short things yeah if i'm writing uh you know a play you know or an article or something then i'll generally sit down and think and make some notes and kind of you know read around it for a while and really try and figure out some of what i'm saying but when it comes to short things i kind of let them do their thing and be however long or short they want to and and this one felt nice and encapsulated you are also a playwright and as a matter of fact you have written otc's next play lux so we wanted to ask you would you say it's useful writing monologues or short stories when you want to develop your writing skills as a playwright the writing process for me when it comes to plays has always been about getting something to be able to direct or perform it's not a process I take a massive amount of pleasure in. So writing for a reason is something that really helped me. Once you tell everyone that you've got some dates for a show, once you've told everyone, you kind of have to do the show now, and then that means you've got something that you kind of have to do. 
but then sometimes you know it's nice to to just if you have an idea and a spare 10 minutes to scribble it down and and yeah i've had a folder full of scribbles and notes and things that probably never go anywhere and then maybe one day turn into something nice are your notes this is a bit maybe a bit of a personal question but are your notes notes in your phone or laptop or are they actually hand scribbled i think this tells a lot about somebody they used to be hand scribbled and now they're notes in my phone and I find that the notes in my phone have a quite a difficult journey to get anywhere apart from notes on my phone that get f- pushed further and further down the list. Whereas once it's on paper, you kind of you have to tidy that paper somewhere. Unless you have a lot of space to tidy paper away, you have to decide to either chuck it away or or not. Yeah, scribbling things down is is handy because you kind of I don't know. It feels like there's more space to wander around the page with the idea as well. Yeah, I have to say I am a bit old school and I I love scribbling down on paper and I'm left-handed so it's barely legible but and I think you know the angles that I write and you know sometimes I write vertically down and do weird bullet points and yeah I think it's all part of the process. And uh, talking about locks but I know this for most of your plays they often contain longer monologues. They do yeah. So uh, why do you enjoy them so much? What What's the magic in them? I think it goes Back to what I was saying just now about I write in order to act or direct or do storytelling. As an actor, if you get kind of a juicy monologue or a story to do on stage, it, you know, it, it can be quite scary, but it's also a gift. And so I think if I'm writing, I've I've always got half of an actor's head on going, would I like to play this? Would I? Would this be fun? Would this be? Yeah, yeah, this would be cool. And they're, they're you know, in, in theatre, they're a great window into what someone's really thinking or feeling. Yeah, and I think that's partly why it's such an inviting device or tool, right? Because monologues, as you said, it's an insight into the inner workings of a mind. And so I think then it's a bit, yeah, it's intriguing. You slowly walk down this weird memory lane or thought process as they as they do too. And it's easier to connect to, I think, than, um, yeah, as you said, short, mm. quickfire um, speech. Yeah, I mean it, that has absolutely has its place. Of course, I mean, it's it's kind of sparring with words, but when you get some lovely little detail in a story that someone's telling, which comes totally out of left field, and you go, "Why would you remember that detail?" And yet, it's those details that do define our everyday experiences. Of why do we remember that day when we were seven, when the ice cream had a beetle on it, or what, I don't know, I'm making it up. But why does that stick? Yeah, those are the things that. It's kind of the pointless things that that help define a person in some way. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Well, I think... Uh, yeah, thank you for joining there. us. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we have to hold out until the autumn before people in the Netherlands can come and see the show. Oh, right? Lux, yes. It's just just be to October. give a rough ballpark in case it's people start holding their breath now. Yeah, October, yeah, okay. In October. And, uh, but we've been saying that it's going to happen for the last um, seven months. It's going to be staged in October, um, and uh, yeah, it will happen, right? You know what I love about this podcast? Whenever we set a theme, the writers and actors always surprise us by coming up with really creative interpretations of the theme. When we sat down to think up themes and we were grappling with whether to call this episode tits and ass or tits up or whatever it was, 
Who knew we'd be sat here, blown away by monologues that took us from a teen tit pick to a best friend's funeral, and finally to some backwater dive bar with the circus folk? <laughs> Amazing. We are always on the lookout for actors and writers to be part of the podcast. We are currently accepting monologues for our next two episodes, which are themed The Games We Play and Dirt. If either of these inspires you to write, send your five to eight minute monologue, that's 700 to 1100 words, to us at info at orangetheatrecompany.com before the 10th of September. You've got all summer long, so get writing. And as always, you can find all the info and links to anything we've mentioned here today in the show notes. And stay up to date with all things monologue podcast related on our Facebook or Instagram page at The Monologue Podcast. As you can probably tell, we're coming to the end of the show. So it's time for your lesser known quote from a famous play. Today's quote is from the hit musical A Chorus Line, and it also inspired our episode title. It first hit Broadway in 1975 and was, for a while, the longest ever running show. The story follows 17 dancers auditioning for the chorus of a new play on Broadway. The quote comes from the very vampy seasoned dancer Sheila. Why is it only my ass that ever gets invited places? Whew, your lesser known quote this episode has got some spunk. Try slipping it into a WhatsApp message today or print it on a t-shirt. That's a wrap, folks. Syra, thanks for being my co-hostess with the mostess. A standing ovation, please, for Noor, Ono, Evangeline, Venetia, Eli and Sam, our monologuers today, without whom the show is not possible. And an especially big thank you to James Cook, He's a musical genius behind our original theme tune and music. If you want to know more about his work, head to jamescookcomposition.com. Dag, doei, ciao, adieu, joygin, auf Wiedersehen, ciao, sayonara, toodaloo. Join us after the summer break. Ciao.